welcome to episode 19 of the 1099. I can't believe we're at episode 19 already. This is crazy. Uh, this is for the week of November 16th. Thanksgiving is coming up. Christmas is coming up. Oh my God, the holidays are coming up. Uh, it is a warm, sunny day in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is uh, the operations manager at the Indie Mega Booth and co-founder of the Indies Workshop, and my friend, Chris Floyd. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm good, Josiah. How are you? I'm great. I hope you take my friend as the most important one of your, <laughs> uh, your title there. Uh, yeah, I want to save that for last. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so we've known each other for a bit. Um, you've actually, at one point, when I was kind of when I was coming up, uh, I'd asked you to edit some of my work, and you were very nice to do that. And I want to have you on today because, uh, and we were talking about this beforehand, a lot of people when they get into freelancing, I feel, kind of have this this one goal in mind, this pie in the sky, I want to write for Game Informer, I want to write for GameSpot, I want to write for IGN. But as we've talked, as I've talked about multiple times on this show, those those jobs are few and far between. There are not a lot of vacancies in that area. Yeah, so and there's lots of people interested in having this. It, yeah, it's unbelievably competitive, and uh, you know, anytime a job opens up, it's just insane how many people are applying for those. So it's you know, it, it's hard to get those kind of jobs. So you did some freelancing beforehand, and now instead of being a full time in a job like that, you're doing this awesome work at the Indie Mega Booth. So uh, kind of just taking a step back, can you kind of define what it is that you do at the Indie Mega Booth and how you uh, came across that job? <clears throat> it's probably a pretty messy definition because it's basically everything that needs to be done. <laughs> the team is pretty small. We have myself and Kelly, who is the OG Indie Mega Booth person. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a bunch, a bunch of people that we contract on and off for various different things. But yeah, beyond that, it's kind of a lot of stuff. The benefits of being in a, a very small team are that you kind of get to do a little bit of everything, but it also means that you never get to focus on anything because you're always <laughs> doing like seven things at the same time. Yeah. So I do, you know, pick playing video games for a living um, or calling and speaking with corporate sponsors, you know, things yeah. like that. Lots of event organizing. I do a, like a whole combination of what superficially probably sound like pretty boring jobs, but there's lots of interesting stuff in there. Yeah, and uh, like like we had talked about before, so you had done some freelancing before. You mentioned Game Ranks and Pace Magazine and stuff like that. Is that work what got you noticed by uh, the people who were hiring for this position? Um, sort of. Um, there wasn't really anyone hiring for it. I just got it. <laughs> oh, really? Like, yeah, it's kind of funny. So the way it worked, so I used to do a bunch of writing for a site that is now gone called Video Game Writers. Okay, yeah. Brian Shea was in charge of that. He's now at Game Informer. Oh, yeah, um, he's, he's been on here before. And Jason Evangelo, who now writes for Forbes, was the guy who started it all together. But um, So I used to be writing for that, and I used to work at a music magazine many years before that. And so I had a bit of experience in like how how you how you put together like a print magazine and how articles get commissioned and how how you approach that kind of thing, especially when you're writing for a monthly thing that you only have, you know, theoretically 25 days to make a whole new version. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that in terms of writing for a thing, the only way to ever have sort of important writing on a site like that is to either be a features person or have a column. Yeah. Um, so I got a column and <laughs> pitched for that. Because it meant that it would push, it would mean it would mean that I was consistently putting something out every single week, 
you know, it's kind of like it's a fun challenge to put on yourself because sort of after you press publish, you start to panic about what next week's is going to be, <laughs> and then over the course of the week, it just like it just comes to you. But I used to write about a you know every week I'd write about a bunch of different things, like pick a topic that I thought was interesting, and then I discovered the Indie Mega Booth, and decided to set myself. Uh, in retrospect, incredible, insane task that I have no idea how I pulled off. But um, every single week, I would interview a person who had been in the mega booth. So I would like email them on a Monday, schedule a conversation for a Wednesday, transcribe over the next couple of days, format it, put it all together, and publish it on a Sunday. Oh, every every single week. Oh my god. Which is pretty nuts. It's yeah, like, especially the transcription part, because that takes time. Forever. <laughs> yeah. No one. No one realizes that they hate transcription. Until they have to do it. I've never um, met anyone who was like, you know what I love doing? Listening to interviews <laughs> and writing down what everyone said. That is just my favorite job. That is, incidentally, a friend of mine who's a freelance writer. He makes money on the side by just being a professional transcriptor. Doing, doing um, the Lord's work. Yeah, because there's no amount of money I think people wouldn't pay to have someone else do that. <laughs> yep. Once you know that they'll do it right. Um, but yeah, so I did that a whole bunch. And that kind of, for obvious reasons, got me in touch with a lot of people who'd been in the mega booth and eventually that pushed me towards getting in touch with Kelly and stayed in touch. I then volunteered at two events that they ran and during this period I had kind of moved out of the writing stuff and started working at Activision. And oh, I did not know that. What did you do at Activision? Sort of like very low tier stuff. I was doing certification work, which is where when a game is being ready to be released on, say, a Nintendo platform or a Sony or a Xbox or whatever. Mm. You have a bunch of things that the game has to do. Weird little things like if the controller's unplugged, a message has to show up. It's oh, very... <laughs> really? Uh, the, the stuff you don't think about? Yeah, very like the stuff that like no one who's making the game really cares about. <laughs> um, so I worked on that for a bit, and I did a little bit of light production work before I left it. But I left it to go straight into the mega booth. So. Gotcha. So yeah, I mean, you went from the one of the biggest companies to like <laughs> very indie, very uh, small, smaller yeah. style. But I mean, that's it has to feel good going from like you said, you go from the kind of lower tier work of a giant organization to running so many different things of a smaller one. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the big the the funny thing about working in like a really large place like Activision is that everyone is like I was saying before, everyone kind of is focused on one particular thing. You know, you're either you know, maybe you're working on like the classic one is like when you see the art teams that whose job is just to polish like one particular aspect over and over and over again. Yeah. A friend who used to work at DreamWorks and his job was just to make sure that all the flame effects in all <laughs> of the movies were you know, as good as they could be. So he just dealt with flames. Did he the- like review the flames on a scale of one to ten? Like that one's eight, <laughs> that one's hot fire and this one's like, I don't know, that one's not very flamey. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. All I know is that he super duper hated it. <laughs> do it. But yeah. But yeah, so you get that kind of thing and then moving from Activision to the to the Mega Booth work was a shift where instead of you know, every day you you come into the office and you know exactly what you have to do turns into oh, you know, what what does today hold? And there's yeah. like twenty different things on your plate. Yeah, and I mean a lot of you know, moving back to freelancing for a second, a lot of freelancing is like that too, where, you know, every day is kind of this new, like, what's today going to be and what new responsibilities yes. going to have? Um, and moving back uh, really quickly to, you were talking about uh, Brian Shea's site, Video Game Writers. One thing that uh, I've always looked at toward, like, 
how did I make it to GameSpot and IGN was always, when I came up, I did a lot of volunteer work. I did a lot of um, writing at sites that weren't paying. So I worked at, uh, I started out Reaction Time, which is a very small site, and then moved on to XBLA fans, PSN fans, eventually Stick Skills, and then um, GameRanks was the first paying job. The problem with trying to, I'm a little bit out of that bubble now of like the, right. the smaller sites. And so people are kind of like, hey, where do I get my start? How did you come across video game writers? Was that something, Brian, you knew him before he asked you? Or did you see it and try to reach out to them? No. Uh, the funny thing about all that is that whenever I wrote for video game writers, I was the only person who wasn't in the U.S. Oh, really? Doing it. Yeah, I lived in the U.K. And I discovered the website through... Uh, God, you know, it, it's I can't even super remember what it was anymore. I think, and this sounds very bizarre, isn't it? So it may absolutely not be true, but <laughs> I think that Felicia Day retweeted an article someone had written on the website about um about armor or something. Okay, like a, like a Dragon Age, like some kind of yeah. Weird... This actually sounds plausible to me, like because so many um of my initial like the start of everything was always like, oh, I saw a tweet, and then that's how I yeah. ended up somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the twist to me is I don't understand why Felicia Day would have been doing this, but <laughs> regardless, I don't know, I came across it somehow, and then at that stage, the website was pretty pretty brand new, and they, I mean, they weren't paying, we should make that clear, yes. and I figured that I would uh, use their contact form to see if they would be interested, and in, I leveraged the fact that I worked at a magazine before, and I knew a lot about how journalism works, and sent the email and that was kind of it. I kind of figured like all contact forms, nothing would come of it. And then they messaged me back, I think like, must have been like two or three weeks after or something. Oh wow. And said, hey, thanks for getting in touch. Like, yeah, we'd really love to have you involved. What do you think you would do? And then to go back to our earlier conversation, that's where I said, oh, you know, I can do a bunch of stuff, but I'd really like to have a a column doing that. It is still hard because I feel like there's still a lot of those sites out there. Um, There's still a lot of smaller sites that are accepting volunteer work, but it's always hard for me to like. I wish there was a better way for me to like sift through those and find stuff. Where I'm like, you, this is a good place that you should write. This is like definitely because I know I think Twinfinite uh, still does yeah. volunteer work, and then there's like Gamer Assault Weekly uh, does volunteer stuff. But uh, yeah, it's always hard. To, it, it's the same way. Um, one of the most critical things for me when I was coming up and I was an awful writer uh, was finding the right editor. Finding that person who um, could just, you know, would take the time to look at your work and say, like, uh-huh. look, you, you're using this word too many times or why did you randomly use the passive voice here? Josiah, you idiot. This is the real thing that would happen. Uh, and it's another thing that's hard to always suggest to people because I'm like, I think you need kind of that mentor if you really want to take the next step. But yeah. it's hard to be like, OK, now go find someone who's willing to spend this time and is a really good writer. So when you were coming up, did you have someone who was always looking over your stuff? I guess the funny twist behind that is that I, the music magazine job that I had, Mm -hmm. um, started because I'm a really good proofreader. Yes, Um, I can I can vouch for that. So, so I never really had anyone take that role because that kind of was the role that I assumed real fast. Yeah. Um, There's a, I mean, there's sort of a, a case we made, I think, for. British English having a particular approach that's a a little more strict than how American English works, and so you have a a better eye for, like the classic, the classic U.S. misspelling of when people put then instead of then. Oh yeah, which makes sense when your accent makes those two words sound the same, but (laughs) to me it's incredibly obvious that it's not right. 
Um, so yeah, I, I kind of mostly did my own thing. I, when I did reviews for Video Game Writers, we used to have, I think Brian and a couple others would would take it like everyone sort of took a look over everything as a second pass, third pass kind of concept. Mm. But because my column thing was so tight, I never had any editing on it. But I was kind of my my own proofreader. No, I mean, yeah, that's it's definitely good to have a second pair of eyes. But if you, I think, I think for sure it's very important if you don't already have a strong writing background mm. to have someone who's going to tell you how to use it. Because the funny thing about writing is that you know, shy of countries where it's obviously impossible, but most people are literate to some degree. Mm. And if you're setting up a like, let's say you're setting up a blog to start doing your own thing, yeah, um, you're up against like. A whole lot of people who are doing that, and the concept of writing is always that it seems very easy because it's like, well, you know, I've been doing this since I was four years old. Yeah, like actually learning how to communicate in a very uh, concise and accurate way without like annoying the person who's reading your work or trying to like overly impress them. Oh God, overly impressing is one of the most frustrating things to read, and I mean, everyone's been through that phase in their life. Most yeah. people at least have where. You, you learn a new word and you want to use it or you, you, <laughs> you learn how to right click and synonym and you start using things where it's like, okay, that's a synonym, but it really does, like the meaning isn't perfect here and it's obvious yeah. that you don't even know how that word works. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I strongly recommend, um, there's a really good book that I think, I think American writers get pushed towards early. I never heard of it until I was like a year into living in the US, but um, it's by Strunk and White. Have you ever heard of it? I have not, no. Okay. Well, you should go on to Amazon and get this book. It All is right. called. Let me look at my bookcase. Uh, the Elements of Style. Okay, hold on. I I have heard of that. Yeah, for some reason the the author's name did not ring a bell, but I have heard of this. I don't think I've read all the way through it yet. So it's a it's a great book. It's very very short. Um, it used to be. I think the guy who wrote it was an English professor at. I'm just gonna make up where he was. He was in some Chicago university. <laughs> I'll believe you. And. Uh, he used to hand this out in like the first week um, to all the undergraduate students mm. and just say, I'm not going to tell you how to do all this stuff. So here's the guidelines on how to do things. I expect you to like to adhere to this, you know, and then get better. Um, it's really, really short. I'd say it takes, I mean, you can go through it in an afternoon. It might take you like a week to pour through. Yeah. And it's just lots of little tiny examples of ways to communicate very, very uh, concisely. Yes. It's actually the most important bit. Like the path is usually that you're a very casual writer. Let's say you write in the same tone as you would like instant message somebody and then you start to you swing over to the overly impressive side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like crazy words in. And then you realize how obnoxious that is and you pull it back. And most most writers I respect the most are the ones who are kind of barely there. The longer I write and the more, because I have a, you know, one of my good friends has kind of been like my editor over the course of a lot of my like early freelancing and uh, even like recently we go over things. And the one thing I've noticed about my writing, because it, it, I think it's important to kind of go back and read what you wrote, see, you know, what would I change now? Stuff like that. And it's always like everything is much more concise. Like there are fewer words. There are f the sentences are more they're cleaner and like that was one of the main things that i learned over time uh which seems like you kind of in the same boat where it's you know there, there's still this there's fun playing with language where you can you can use frilly words and you can use stuff like that but sparingly and 
you like especially for review i'm like you i'm working more and more toward delivering my message in the clearest way possible that's yep. not simple and basic not in a way where like it, it, it's this weird balance of being uh kind of uh, like painting a picture with your words while not using too much paint if that makes sense i think for me this always had a, a weird root in the fact that i when i was you know at school or whatever i could never really adhere to word counts yep like in in the sense of like if someone something had to be two thousand words long i would barely be able to get it past a thousand words yeah then i would start to feel like i was just padding it out and then that's a really bad um lesson to learn Mm -hmm. that you know that essentially that like you're a thousand word thesis on something isn't valid but if you add if you add a lot of adverbs to it it will be valid like (laughs) well that's also i mean that's so many schools just do stuff like that where like the, the, the structure of essays this five paragraph essay structure that we would have in like my high school, it was just always like, yeah, but like I could do this in five, but I could more effectively communicate this in three. Um, yeah. But then you and fail. That's, and that's funny how that goes. And then when, so then, then when you try working, so a funny thing about a lot of online writers now is that they don't have any previous print experience. Mm. And print is a real, a real good lesson. You know, whether or not it's doomed is a story for another day. <laughs> but learning the idea that like words take, take up physical space. Yes. And so if you can't fit them into, like the concept of a two-inch column, like sounds like an impossible way to measure. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, measure a way of thinking. But like when you're thinking like, oh, I have to write this thing that will fit in here, and that's like basically you can put two hundred words there and no more. Yeah, it's it's a completely different mindset. Um, like yeah. look at something. Let's use you know the recently deceased Grantland as an example of like sure. look at one of those columns and a Zach Lowe or Bill Simmons column is you know thousands and thousands of words and in in the the print world which i i um never worked at a paper but i job shadowed uh quite right. a few when i was coming up and you you learn about those those limits that uh ha- make you it forces you to be more concise and like you said it's yeah. unfortunate that maybe it's a, a dying kind of uh, medium but it, it yeah, does it's a great it's a great first place to like find how that functions because on a yeah you know, on a wordpress site or whatever you can basically write as much as you want and you shouldn't. That's the thing. Like, and that's yeah. uh, the so um, for GameSpot, like the review template doesn't. It gives you an idea of how many words are on a single page. Uh, you know, before you do, you know, like I think it's like eight to twelve hundred words on one page. If you start doing more, we'll switch it to two. But I've always, in my mind, had my own like limit. My own. I don't want to go over this many words uh, because I think even though a review can be twenty five hundred words. I think I could more effectively communicate that in half the words, half the number. And like, that's always been super more and more. Like the more I write, the more I realize that, that like, I remember when I was coming up at like stick skills and those sites that I was volunteering at, I would have like a 3000 word review. And I can't even imagine reading one of those right now. Like that sounds like a chore. Like that sounds like <laughs> a job to read something like that. Yeah. I, I don't miss writing those long things. And I'm, I'm so happy that like shorter content is can be better and that's something that you know i'm working toward uh and so you had mentioned uh that book a little bit ago and i think that's good advice for people who if you're at a position where you you're struggling to find an editor uh to kind of look over your stuff while you're coming up uh reading books like that is super helpful to you know read that stuff read people who although they are not right there looking over your shoulder on a google doc and updating things and letting you know um, that's a good barometer for like, hey, like, where am I at? What's this person saying? What can I learn from that? Picking up different I think ideas. Like, like I was saying about the whole, most people, most people, you know, who are at least entering this are semi-literate. Mm. Um, 
that you really need to acknowledge that whatever you're able to do right now isn't if you're going to take it seriously you have to take it seriously yeah absolutely and um, so you need to be writing and you need to be writing all the time like that's the most annoying one people always say right if you want to get better keep doing it lots but do it a whole bunch and then take lessons it doesn't have to be like you know going to a class or whatever it can be just like buying a book like that and reading through it and identifying where you are bad yeah and it's it's like a muscle that you got to keep exercising it. I haven't uh, I haven't written a review in a few weeks, and like I'm kind of itching to get back into it because I don't want to get out of writing shape. Uh, yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I, I have a full time job that is unrelated to games, and that gives me opportunity to write. So I'm not going insane. Like I, I have enough where I'm still being creative, or I'm still, you know, working on it and always working on it. But there is this moment where you're just like, oh, I I, I need to start writing a feature review again uh, because. Mm-hmm. I don't, it's not that I'm going to lose it overnight, but it's going to be like kind of painful to get right back into it after being away for three, four weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's something that I, other than like, even like, you know, reading about it helps, but just doing it is like the most important thing doing it and uh, self-evaluating a lot, which I think a lot of people don't love to do. It's not fun to look at your own stuff and figure out what's wrong or have someone else tell you what's wrong, but self-evaluating. Feel, yeah. It doesn't feel good to one, be bad or be ign- acknowledge that you are bad yes someone (laughs) directly telling you that this is not like this is not working uh or this needs to be changed one of the worst things is when you finish a feature or a review and you feel good about it and you get like the we need to change the majority of this like you went in the wrong direction you're just like oh my god gut punch so that's i I got a nice want to start writing more i need to start pitching (laughs) features again uh so moving uh back a little bit so Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that so, uh, do you spend a lot of time kind of sifting through indie games for your job to figure out what is I know worthy sounds like weird, but what is correct what what's a good fit for the mega booth sort of i mean it is obviously, but um it takes up about two months of the year or like that so at six month ish intervals okay a month where there's lots of i play through i mean I think kind of it last year and it's something like I think I play like 600 games a year. Oh God, that has to be. I mean, they're indie games, so they're shorter. But Jesus, so what? Of course, it it depends. You know, it's a lot of this stuff is changing. You know, depending on the year and the quality of stuff. But normally, what determines what's the right fit for the mega booth? Uh, and do you ever have moments where you're playing, you know, 600 games, and there's three games that are very similar? Let's say you play through all three and you beat all three, and they're very similar. Um, and they're all pretty good, but one stands out. Do you not include those other two because they're similar, or is it okay to have a lot of specific genre or specific type of game? Um, so a lot of that depends on uh, what the overall submissions look like. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the mandate behind the, the Mega Booth with that is that we try to, every showcase kind of represents what's happening at that moment. In, in games, so if there's a lot of like for example, let's say 30% of our submissions are local multiplayer games, mm-hmm. that is you know, a pretty strong indicator that that's what people are making right now, like whether or not that's what the market is supporting or whatever is irrelevant, right? It's like 30% of people are making these games, so it would be weird if we didn't have more than one of those in the space. Okay. Um, on the flip side of that, say we don't have something which is thematically showing up a lot, but we do have, like you say, hypothetically, the three, the three JRPG influence games, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll usually just put one of those in, um, because we want to make sure that everything we have 
has a like very strong reason to go and check it out. And so if you have two games that are pretty similar that are in there at the same time, both kind of suffer. Mm-hmm. Whereas we'd rather we'd rather one has a great chance rather than like two have a slim chance. Yeah. So being able to say to someone, Oh, do you like RPGs? Well then you should go over and try this thing. Yeah. It's great. Instead of saying, well, you should go do this thing or go and do this thing, because then they just don't do either. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is a hard question, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, so you've been doing this for, is it about two years at this point? Mm-hmm. What is the game that stands out the most of the, let's say, 1,200 games that you have played? What's the one where you oh, were just, I know, it's a hard one. If you want to say multiple games, it's fine too. But, you know, you play so many goddamn games. Um, and... Although, you know, a lot of them are creative and interesting, there has to be a moment where you're like, oh, God, there's just so many. What was the one that kind of maybe really grabbed your eye more than any other that was like, I have not seen something like this before? Um, so I would say I would say this actually, fortunately, at least so far, this happens every single time we have a submissions uh, oh, wow. session. There's always, it's like when you're playing through hundreds and hundreds of games. Mm-hmm. You get pretty jaded. Oh, absolutely. Like, it gets very difficult to... Like, let's say, for example, you're looking through 10 games per day, which is about what, I, what I'm doing on those things. Mm. It gets very difficult to, like, maintain the same level of excitement. Like, you, you know, to, when the the first game you open in, in the morning compared to the one you open at, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon yes. is a totally different mental space. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you do, like, you do get to the point where there's always the day where you go through 10 things and you're like, ah. Oh, this is all like none of this is good. Maybe I don't like playing games. Maybe this like I shouldn't be doing this. Someone else is <laughs> like video games. I'm done. I'm out. It. Yeah, but I mean, everyone feels that from time yeah. to time. But then there's always the game that you discover, and you're like, "Holy crap!" Okay, everything that you know, I felt bad about all these things before, and now I need to go back and look at those because this is like reinvigorated yeah. me. Video games are saved. And so, like this year, one of the standouts for that was a game called Mini Metro. Okay. Um, that I strongly recommend looking up, but. It is. It was made by a bunch of guys from New Zealand, and it is. So it's sort of. It's like a public transport infrastructure game. Interesting. Sounds like it sounds not like a crazy idea, but its presentation is just amazing. Like in, you, you build you build out your city, your city's like train lines, mm. as if they were on a subway map. Interesting. Okay. And so it's just this like the and the whole experience of it is just very very nice. It's so well put together. Its presentation is amazing, and like it was the one game where, even though so all of the judges that give feedback on the games can't see each other's feedback, and every single person who played it said that they'd basically either started playing it and didn't realize two hours had passed, <laughs> or they started playing it and like almost couldn't, like didn't want to look at any more games. They were just wow. like, I've, 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 this is just all I want to play. Like, is... And so when something like that happens, it's great. It's cool because like, if you have a good time with a game, that's really good. But when you see 10, 15 people who are all like from different you know, different backgrounds, different interests, all saying something is really, really good, it kind of gives you a sign that you've hit on something. Totally. Is that uh, something that's available now or is that still in development? I think it just released. It was in early access for a while. It's just come out to find a release last oh. week. Before. I need to check that out then. I've never heard of that. It's really good. Yeah, that's awesome. Like I said, you've been doing this for about two years, so in the last two years, indie games have, in my mind at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think they've become even more prolific. I mean, you look back at the Sony press conference of 2013, is what I'll always kind of look back at as all these indie games on stage. I just had Lauren Landing on, and he was on there, and just talking to him kind of about 
the reinvigorated Sony and the uh, the spotlight on indies was is super interesting. So at, at this point, once again, you've played so many of these games. How would you how would you personally diagnose the current health of the indie market? Is it still going to be rising year after year? Do you think we're at some sort of peak and we're going to start kind of lowering over time? What's kind of the current state for you? Um, I mean, we, so we do a, we've been doing a panel every year or so now that packs that we kind of jokingly title like you know like a state of the union for mm-hmm. indie games because we see a lot of them. We want to talk about how things look. Yeah, I think I think the way things are going. There was there was a time not too long ago when as long as you made a thing and released it, you were probably going to do well enough. I know that uh, a guy developer called E. McNeil who works on a game called Darknet mm. actually wrote a thing for maybe I want to say it was maybe Polygon. I don't know, but he made this like little small strategy game a couple of years ago that even by his own estimations wasn't very good, and he was hoping to he was hoping to make something like a hundred dollars off of it. And even though it wasn't that great, it made him like a pretty substantial chunk of change. Wow. And and he was kind of talking about how that you know this has now changed because the market is like there's so many different games to play now that it's hard for you to find you know like to, to carve the chunk out of the audience that will just get yours. Um, but I think I think what's happening now is that that halcyon day is over, and I think that's not a bad thing. You know, it's it's good that the bar has had to be raised up. Yeah. Um, because it's kind of good for everybody. But I think what is what's happening now is it's meaning that a lot of teams have to much more seriously think about what they're doing. You know, and consider like, is this is this a good idea? Are we you know are we in this for the right reasons? Um, yeah. That's I... a hard question to answer. Like only only the the team itself can can approach that. But we used to get like, there was one year where we saw a lot of a lot of brand new teams. Like a noticeably high amount of yeah of just people who were just getting into the industry. Yep, and we n- never saw them again. Wow. After that, after that submission turned, and I think it's just because a lot of people got in and then realized, oh, this is, a, like, this is not some gold mine. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. You're not going to make Minecraft suddenly and like yeah. blow up immediately. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because it's a lower barrier to entry at this point. You look at early access. I mean, you can push a game out there that is like 50% done and be like, I don't know, like, let's see what happens. Um, And it's unbelievably competitive because there are so many new games. Like Steam is so difficult to navigate at this point to find the good games. I had um, Eric Asmussen on here who did Disco Dodgeball. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. guy. That game is super interesting and it's very unique. But and he did well for himself and, you know, he admitted that. But that game, I think if it released two, three years ago, it would have blown up. Like, it would have been a much bigger thing, but it's so hard to just find it on the store. And even, uh, like, for GameSpot, uh, I reached out to him to say, like, hey, like, I'll see if I can review this for like for GameSpot. And they said yes, but it's, it's hard for sites to know what is worth covering because so much is coming out, and so much of it is... A lot of it's not worth playing. It's not worth seeing. It's not worth reviewing. And when you have this limited... Uh, when the limited budget to you know review things, this, and you need to pick and choose, it's so hard to find things. So yeah, it's 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 a strange market right now because, like like you said, it's you know you can't just release anything and have this guaranteed hit, which is good for just about everyone. But I think it's also yeah. leading to some good games are slipping through the cracks. Yeah, I mean I think it's it's scary obviously because the question then is 
you know how how good do these have to become like do we have to start to approach you know triple a versions of games for them to even get noticed and yeah. i think that i think that a lot of that is disproved when you see a game like uh undertale mm-hmm. oh, um, yeah absolutely that like is is you know it, it 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 does a really good job of doing a thing that nothing else is doing you know, there's other people. Like it's not the only game that's an RPG, but it's one of the only ones that was sort of like fun and it's pseudo self-aware. Like it's it's been very clearly made for a kind of person. Yeah. And so a lot of people gravitated towards that. Um, if you want to scare yourself, you should load it up on Steam and look at it, like the amount of reviews it has. Like I've now started to use that as a metric for <laughs> how crazy popular a game is because it's impossible to tell in your own sort of social media circles or whatever if something that's big is actually big yeah it's hard to determine yeah because you know when you follow a whole bunch of game industry people like if they're all talking about it like yeah that game could still have only sold ten thousand units right no idea but you look at undertale's review page and it's just like wow how do they do this but and that's the how did i know of course you don't know you didn't develop the game (laughs) it's so rare to do that to release something on Steam that is, it's like you said, it's it's for a specific type of person. It's a very specific. Uh, I think, I think that's the key. Like the key is is to, and this this is true. Of, I mean, we can talk about games or talk you know, to pull this back into a freelance thing. Like to, having an audience in mind is incredibly important. Like you should never try to make everybody happy. It's it's an impossible task. No, yeah, and that that won't. In the end, you're gonna make no one happy. You're gonna yeah, you're gonna cut so many different corners. Um, yeah. And like you said, like that—that's a game that knew its audience. And I think trying to think of it—is it Downwell? Was that the recent? Uh, yep. So that's another one where it's not. It might you might not look at Undertale and say like, like Downwell is different in that it's pretty simple. It's it's not this new. They're not reinventing the wheel to use a way overused turn of phrase. Sure. Um, yep. But what they do, they do so unbelievably well. Mm-hmm. Um, not to make a well pun, but they, <laughs> yeah, they do it so <laughs> so great. That it also found an audience in that way. So it's, I don't think when you're looking for, to make an idea, sometimes it doesn't have to be, I'm going to revolutionize this or I'm going to do something so different that it's, you know, everyone's going to be shocked. Like, oh, I've never thought about this. That's totally one way to do it. It's, it, it's, it's same way with writing. If you want to, you know, if you feel that your voice is different from everyone else's and you want to magnify that, uh, I think, you know, that works. But if it's okay, if, what you're doing has been done before as long as you are doing it extremely well i think uh and that's you know the difference between those two games in my mind but still i have no idea how you make money with i don't know how you get noticed with any games i haven't i don't know if there's some secret sauce some secret formula that people know but undertale is such a cool story yeah how that does watching work. how all that stuff happens it it very much does seem it seems to me that the the trick is like if you're if you're making a game where you say oh it's for people who like this game. That's mm. a really hard way to get anyone to care about your game because what you're saying is there's already a thing that exists. Yeah, totally. That is, that is arguably going to be good because you know if you liked it so much, you're making a thing that's you know based on it. Yeah, you want to make something which is you know things can be like other things, but they really need to mark themselves out with a strong reason for why you'd want to look at them. Yeah, in some. Um, and I think I mean I think like like I was saying, acknowledging that in the current climate people need to really really figure out what that is is not a bad thing like it's it's scary but i think it's scary in a good way yeah you're not seeing as many you know 
success stories in terms of just everyone releasing something making money but that's okay i mean it's you know it's true it's true of any industry like you know the music industry went through this a bunch of years ago whenever you know online music basically became a thing and suddenly you could discover suddenly you could discover bands from anywhere right it wasn't like everyone just listened to pink floyd led zeppelin the rolling stones yeah um you know now now you look at like where music is and it's like the amount of genres is insane like the idea of you know every like the joke is like in electronic and metal there's a genre for every single possible permutation of it <laughs> you know like there's hundreds and hundreds of genres of music yeah where they're previously while they did sort of exist there wasn't enough of a like a market to support them yeah and so you know what happened is you got a lot of stuff which is really cool that is hard to find and so you have to start digging really deep into like niche areas and like that's I guess, in my perspective, a good thing mm-hmm. for anything. Like the idea that you could just find a thing that you like. Like if you decided to start watching sci-fi movies, right? How many sci-fi movies could you watch before you would run out? Oh yeah. Like you'll probably die. You <laughs> probably, yeah, I would say so. So you know, having that kind of thing happen with games is cool, but people just need to work out, work out what they're doing with their project and what makes it important, not just for them, but for everyone else who doesn't care about it as much as they do. Yeah, and I mean, and it's always changing too with just the different you know platforms you can launch on. Before, like you know, Xbox 360 came, and that seemed like it was you know indie games coming out on consoles, and now PS4 and Xbox One is seemed to be two very kind of good homes for indie games. And Steam's always changing, and just yeah, hopefully over time though, Steam kind of adapts to the changing market, and they're able to filter that stuff in a way where the the good games went out. And that's always, you know, it's always what you hope for, that quality stands out. Uh, and right now I feel like it isn't always that way. But we'll see. Once again, it's it's changing. It's hard yeah. to just say, like, oh, it's going to work immediately. Like, no, it, things will figure <laughs> themselves out. Uh, yeah, if anyone ever tells you they know how to solve these problems, they are the most dangerous kind of person that you could know. <laughs> um, so I asked this question to Lauren Lanning last week, and I kind of want to ask the same one to you. So mm-hmm. do you think that now we just talked about di- kind of diagnosing the health of the indie market. Um, and a lot of people who listen to this are people who, if they don't want to get into writing, maybe they want to get into development in some way. Do you think right now is the best time to start making a game? Do you think that there are the most avenues to do, to do so? So you, you mentioned two years ago that it was kind of this gold rush in a way where you can launch anything and make money. So maybe in terms of making money, that was the best time to release a game. But is now even better in terms of the tools, the support, the the ecosystem, the environment of independent games, where you can more comfortably release a game now than ever before. I have a friend who is a game developer and nerd designer, Will O'Neill. Will's a great guy. Um, he made a really good point about this a couple couple weeks ago. When we were talking that. So I mean, at, at a very base level, the the classic thing is like there's never been a better time to start than today. Mm. You know, like, and that's true. Of, that's true of almost everything. Like, whenever you're looking to get involved in any, you know, any hobby, career move, whatever it is, it's very hard to look at it and say, "Oh, there's not already a, you know, a thousand, hundred thousand people doing this better than I am." Yeah. The like the reality is that that's kind of always the case. So you just want to keep going forward, um, and starting on anything is better than nothing. Oh, without a doubt. So. But we'll we'll hit this really well with like the idea of I mean if after this phone call, Josiah, you decide that you're done done with this freelance life. <laughs> Over it. Yeah, moving on. Yeah. And you you know, go on to unity3d.com 
and go to download the Unity engine, for example, or the Game Maker engine, or Construct 2, or whatever you want to use. It's not it's not actually that complicated. Like by the end of tonight, you could have made your first thing. Really? Yeah. Except that, as Will so astutely put it, it's never been easier to start making games, but it's still just as hard to make a good one. You could, like the it's the it's the amount of stuff that's available, like the way that everything's been so democratized in terms of there's no uh, like twenty million dollar price tag on you know the Unreal Engine. For example, like you can go make a game in Unreal right now, I think. But can you go make a good game in Unreal? Probably not. Like not right now. You don't know but... that. Maybe I have some weird hidden <laughs> development skill that maybe, I'm just gonna unearth. Maybe, maybe maybe you're the one. But <laughs> I am the one. Yeah. Most people can get started making what I would say would be bad games now, and they'll be making good games in no time. That's actually similar to something that yeah Lauren had said. He had said that uh, you know, the main the main point was hell yeah right now is the best time mainly because you know, when else? Like, when else yeah, are you going to do this? Yeah, because you can't start making games two years ago. Yeah. Missed out on that. But waiting versus starting now would be a definite start now. I had a friend who wanted to get into the game industry a couple of years back, and I sent him a link, I think, to the Game Maker website. It was like, yeah, there's a bunch of tutorials here. Just learn, like, learn how to make something, and then you can use that when you're talking to anybody. Hmm. And he now works at uh, Nintendo. Oh, what? Jeez. Um, yeah, and he, he and you know part he didn't he got his job in part because he was able to demonstrate that he had some knowledge of how de- game development works and you can pick that kind of knowledge at least at a very very surface level up relatively easily. Mm. Um, but as with all things, I mean, you you don't get a lot of experience in it until you just have a lot of experience in it. Yeah. Now I kind of want to make a video game. Now that you're saying it's like you know kind of easy to download this stuff, I'm gonna immediately start making a video game because I have no idea what it's about. Uh, but you know, I'll I'll keep I'll keep in touch. I'll let you know how this is going. Uh, so earlier, yeah, I, mean, I mean, a great a great thing I would say, great point is that if you have a job right now in any capacity, um, and you have any kind of free time, it's a really good idea to pick up a hobby, like whether that is making games or you know maybe it's like getting into freelancing. Yeah. Um, it's a really good way to reinvigorate yourself and not feel like you're doing the daily grind. You're kind of trying a new thing, and you're trying it in a very safe way because you already have a job. Oh, uh, with no risk, without yeah. a doubt, yeah. And that's why I, I the people who do full time freelancing, like God bless them. I don't know how they do it. Like that's for me, that it's would be work. scary. Um, yeah. One th- one thing I did want to touch on with regards to the working at like doing the mega booth stuff now versus having done freelance stuff in the past is that if you're a really good freelancer, you probably have an above average work ethic. Mm-hmm. Because you, I mean, you have to hustle, right? Like everyone talks about that. You have to really put yourself out there. There's nobody who cares about you doing well, yeah, more than you. So you you are you're a salesperson for yourself while also trying to hold down another skill, right? That yeah. you're trying to sell. And so that that kind of like dogged determination proves incredibly useful. And it's I mean, it's why you see so many people who do freelance work. You know, either move into you know, like you were saying, the game spots or whatever sides of the world, or else they move into development. Because if you meet if you meet the right person at a studio, and you seem super organized, mm. you know, people will will soon say, "Hey, do you want to come give us a hand with this?" Yeah, you have to have your shit together if you want to do freelancing. Um, Big style, yeah. Yeah, you can't, especially if you're full time. You can't half-ass it. It's 
it's more than a 40 hour thing. It's, it's like you said, you're promoting yourself and the more you work, the more successful you are most of the time. So you're yep. determining whether or not, uh, you keep pushing forward and getting more well known. So you, if, if you have the people with the work ethics stand out and, and they're the only ones who do well, cause you can't do well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You also met, so Will O'Neill, does he, he made planet of the eyes recently. Was that the game that he released? He, yeah, he worked on planet of the eyes with, uh, Vanessa and Martin, who are the the core team behind that, he did the, some of the, the writing for it. Okay, so cause, so I played that. Um, I beat that game like right before it released. I think I was someone in the studio sent it to me. So I, really quickly, <laughs> people should buy that game. Like that game is really good. It's uh, yeah, it's real cool. And yeah. it, I mean, it's a good example of a game that kind of disappeared. Yeah, that was a bummer because I I remember coming out and talking about it for a little bit, and then never really heard anyone else talking about it. And it's it's also another example of, uh, it's not reinventing the wheel, but it's doing platforming and that art style really really well yep and like and that and they the team are well aware of this but like that was their problem was that they made a game that was you know there was the market wasn't crying out for another platform game yeah um but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's a really really well put together thing like it's beautiful to look at the, the story is really good mm. yeah there's a lot of stuff there that that I think is cool. Yeah, that was one of those I, I did wish more people would play it, but you're right. It was, it was The world wasn't like, man, I wish I just had another 2D platformer. Like, right. man, we don't have like, I, we are, there's a just a big gaping hole where we need to fill it with more 2D platformers, but it's awesome and people should play it. Uh, so I introduced you at the start as also the co-founder of the Indies Workshop. Is that a, a role within your Indie Mega Booth job or is that something separate? Uh, totally separate. It's a a separate business. So what is that? Well, so I moved to Seattle a year and a bit ago, mm-hmm. and um, Seattle's game development scene is pretty uh, incredible. Yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a big tech city. There's a lot of people around here, um, and people making really good stuff, and weirdly, just no community behind it. Well, there is a community, but it's very fractured. Yeah. Um, and so I thought it would be an interesting experiment to see if I could get people together. To work so about a year ago i think it actually was last november um i started pursuing the possibility of that and then we just opened our doors two weeks ago at the start of november and have a space that people who are in seattle can swing by and work on games when they are in the city and we've couple like currently we've got seven or eight people that are uh tenants of the space oh cool it's yeah it's pretty good it's a a very very stressful time yeah but it's it's a uh, fun work is it something extent. you plan on expanding in the future is it like something that you're kind of working toward every day or is it more of like a side project it's i mean it's a sort of a side project in the sense of i'm still doing the mega booth as my actual work but yeah. um yeah i mean i i have ideas for how i would expand it but it's a matter of sort of testing whether this works i've got a a year basically to figure out how it looks and if it doesn't work out in a year then it'll be gone and that's mm. fine and if it turns out to be a huge deal then that's a good problem to have and i can figure out how to fix it yeah no and it's a good idea to you know see you're in the city with a lot of great developers but if there's no kind of community to title together it's good yeah, to see like hey i mean because yeah it's for it's for these people it's not like we're not it's not a money-making venture <laughs> on yeah. our part but yeah, it's pretty cool. But you if know so many. If anyone wants to go to it, it's indiesworkshop.com. 
or our Twitter is just Indies Workshop. Yeah, and you know so many indies at this point. Once again, you play eight billion indie games. So it's it's <laughs> good for you to you know you can you know those people and you can reach out to them and yeah, provide my, them that space. My goal is to I sort of want it to be the the center of the Seattle game scene. I want people who are in town to go meet with, let's say, like Microsoft or Amazon or whatever to to swing by because they know that's where they can hang out and get some stuff done. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, It's a fun experiment. No, that's really awesome. Uh, and so I told you about this earlier. So during the end of all these podcasts, I, mm-hmm. in a way, like condense either multiple tips or one tip at the end as kind of a here. If for some reason you skip to the end of this podcast, you weirdo, uh, and you just want to get one or two tips, this is the best time to do that. So for me, this is something that uh, usually these tips come from something I was thought about during the week or something that happened to me. One thing that I... So when I moved, first moved to Florida uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, I was working all the time in my new job. I was also doing a whole bunch of freelance work and got a little bit too like stuck in my own house. Like when you live by yourself, it's really easy to just work, work, work and not, you're not really thinking about, you know, going out and doing stuff. One of the healthiest things I've done over the past few weeks is just be more active, which sounds easy and simple and like obvious. Instead of sitting and writing a new pitch, I'm like, you know, I just need to go to the gym. I need to walk my dog. I need to go on a run. I need to walk. And that has helped my productivity just so much in terms of getting my head straight, you know, kind of letting yourself breathe, letting yourself get away from your work uh, and just going out and doing something. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not just a physical health. It's a mental health. And once you're physically healthy, then I think you things start kind of getting better for you. You can Everything just seems better when you're like out and eating right and being active and while it does seem obvious just to say hey go out and run um doing that more has helped me as a writer just kind of clear my head get into a more positive frame of mind because oh my god if you start lifting weights and running it is makes you so much more positive about things uh mm-hmm. so it's weird advice as a writer but yeah if you can whenever you can especially if you are a full-time freelancer you definitely need to do this because that means you're always working from home um, go out and start doing something. Otherwise, you will suffer in other ways that you might not realize. So that is my fitness tip of the week. Uh, Chris, I know I'd kind of sprung this on you before, uh, <laughs> but if you have something that you kind of want to, for you, I guess it would be more toward indie devs or you know writers, whatever you want to talk about. If anything we talked about today, the conclusion would be if you want to start doing it, start doing it now. Yeah. Like whether it's whether that's making games or you know, setting up that WordPress site where you're going to start doing your first reviews. Start today. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's the same way with uh, just writing itself. The hardest part is the first paragraph. Uh, and the hardest part with starting is starting. Yeah. Uh, and set yourself a schedule. I mean, I think that's a huge thing that I would say actually I experience a lot with teams we meet through the mega booth. And I mean, anyone who's doing anything that is semi open ended. Mm-hmm. Um, the temptation with that kind of thing is, oh, I'll write this review. Okay, well, I'll now spend like four weeks where I occasionally drop into it for five minutes and change bits and pieces. Like, tell yourself that something's going to happen by this day. Yeah. Tell other people that it's going to happen by that day. And you'll put pressure on yourself that you will find actually make stuff happen. Oh, yeah. And that uh, when I had uh, Greg Kasavid on here, he had talked about one of the best things he did was just start putting stuff on his Google Calendar. Just start yeah. like... Um, things that you think like otherwise you're like ah oh, well maybe I'll see I make time like no I, it's now on my calendar I know I have to do this even if that's the gym you're like at two o'clock today I'm going to the gym or at 
um, this time I'm going to start writing this or I'm going to uh, record this podcast or start this. And yeah, it, it, once again, it sounds like these simple things that you're like, well, of course that makes sense. But until you actually do it, then you're like, oh, well, this kind of changes everything. <laughs> like shockingly so. Uh, schedules and goals and these different marks you want to reach. Uh, it's much easier when you can kind of put that on paper or put some something that will even if it's a phone reminder to say hey idiot you need to go do this don't stop delaying this stuff yep there's a great uh website actually i recommend for anyone who's working from home or who generally has a lot of stuff that they keep thinking about doing but not doing them um is we have standards.com <laughs> uh, it lets you print out a pdf uh make a pdf version of a like a weekly calendar of something you want to do every single day mm-hmm so, you know, it can be as exciting as brush teeth, walk 20 minutes, like, and what you can do, it's it's kind of for maniacs, but it works for me pretty well, is that you have, like, 10 tasks you have to achieve every single day, and you just print out this sheet and put it on your fridge or whatever, and then you can mark stuff off as you do it, and it's very satisfying. Everyone likes to clear off lists. Yeah, so no, that actually sounds really cool. I've never heard of that. You get, you get to clear off a list, and hopefully by the end of, you know, a week or two, you're helping yourself develop those habits right yeah because that's all it's for it's a habit forming yeah and that's it's it's hard to form habits uh it's easy to form bad habits it's hard to form good habits and uh yeah. Yeah, stuff like that will absolutely do that it's it's repetition yeah. and like you were saying about going out like you know just how often do you tell yourself god oh, yeah i really should go to the gym today and then when it hits like 6 p.m you've no interest in doing it yeah but then once you're in the gym for a minute you're already like, oh, why is this always so hard to do? Like, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah it's not. It's not that bad. It's not this big, scary boogeyman. It's once you're there, it's totally fine. Uh, yeah. yeah, and especially now that the sun's going down so early. By the time it's like five mm-hmm. o'clock, I'm like, the eh, sun's kind of going down. I guess I can go tomorrow. And that just don't do that. Yeah, just, just go. Just yeah, force yourself to go. Uh, so, Chris, thanks for, so much for coming on. I. You might have some of the most indie know-how of anyone I've ever had on here, so it's it's <laughs> nice to kind of kind of do a check-in and be like, "Hey, are indie games still good? Cool. All right, great. Yeah, I'm glad everything's good. going well. So yeah, I you know, hope that uh, you also you continue to find games that reinvigorate you as you're playing 600 a year, uh, and also really hope that Indies Workshop works out well and you know people start using that in Seattle and build a community around that. Yeah, thanks. I hope it figures out. If you're in Seattle anytime soon, let me know. All right. Uh, so if people, once again, uh, can you just give out the Twitter handle for both you and the uh, Indies Workshop? Oh, sure. Um, so mine is C. Floyd Tweets. C with the letter C. Um, Indies Workshop is at Indies Workshop. There's like Facebooks and websites and all that. If you just go to look for it, you'll find it. Um, and then the Mega Booth, obviously, is IndieMegaBooth.com and right. at the Mega Booth. All right. Great. So, yeah, once again, thanks for coming on, and thanks, everyone, for listening. And hopefully you tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.